0: Alright guys, so this morning at Salt City, we're starting a little different kind of series. So our normal rhythm here at Salt City is to teach straight through books of the Bible. But what we also see in the Bible is an example for what I would call occasional sermons. And so all the letters in the New Testament are written to a specific audience in response to something that is happening in that place or that church family. And in our church family, there's lots of conversations that are happening among members of our church, among regular attenders of our church, and in connection groups. And so we're just gonna tackle some tough topics over the next four weeks. So we're talking about gender, politics, justice, and sex. Because that's what people are talking about in our church. And so what we wanna do is we wanna give you some biblical rails to run on. In other words, there's conversations happening within our church, and we want to make sure that those conversations are biblical ones. So buckle your seatbelts, here we go. We're talking about gender. All right, so here's the big idea today: it's that God created men and women to reflect his image. So this is a little different than a normal normal sermon at Salt City. We're starting with God, and we're gonna end with some practical application. There's six points, so we gotta roll. Here we go. First of all, we're starting with God. So we're starting with the Trinitarian nature of God. And you'll see why here in a minute. We're looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, this passage has baffled Jewish scholars for thousands of years. And the reason for that is because there's a plural here. You would think that God would say, Let me make man in my image. But God says, Let us make man in our image. Why does he say that? What we believe is that this passage, which is somewhat unclear, points us to the clarity of the New Testament, where God more fully reveals himself as a tri-personal unity. He reveals that he is more than one person, and yet one at the same time. What's revealed here is the mystery of the Trinity. Okay, so here's what we believe about God. We believe that God is three and one. We believe that the Father is God, that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, and that there is only one God. You following with me? Did I lose you yet? So, by extension, what we also believe is that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. So here's what we believe about God. God is a friendship of equals with different roles. So in other words, the Father is the head of the Son, and the Son is the head of the Spirit. And the Father is the head of the Spirit. So there is an order of roles in the Trinity that does not diminish the dignity or worth of each of the members of the Trinity. So I was explaining this to my daughter, Hazel, and she asked me the question, who is more special, God or Jesus? And I said to Hazel, who is more special, Daddy or your brother, Luke? She wanted to say me. But the correct answer is neither of us are more special. We just operate in different roles within our family. And so we see in the very nature of God, equality in different roles. And it is in this image that God creates men and women. Equal. But as we will see, with different roles, specifically in the home and in the church. So here's the thing. Gender is not a mistake or an afterthought. God is purposeful in creating men and women. Second point, gender was God's design. Okay, the story goes on. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 18. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So immediately we see God creating men and women in his image with different roles. So God creates Adam first. He tells him to work the ground and to keep it. In other words, he is to rule over the creation that God has made. And then God gives the man the commandment, you shall not eat of this tree which Adam is then responsible after God creates Eve to communicate that command directly to him. So he is given spiritual leadership and oversight over his family unit, and he is to rule over the creation. But check this out. God looks at this guy, Adam, who has perfect relationship with God. This is before the fall. And he says... Dude needs some help. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? There is an incompleteness about Adam. He is not up to the task alone. God created women to help men. The roles of both men and women are dignified. Men and women were created equal but different by the God of the universe, and his purpose was that we would thrive in his design as we follow after his commandments. But we know the rest of the story that something terrible happened in the world, and that what we experience on a daily basis is not an extension of God's design but is actually an extension of the fall. The third thing that we have to say about gender is that gender was broken at the fall. Let's look at verses 6 through 9 of Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and then it was a delight to the eyes Among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? So, what we see in this text is the first example in the Bible of role reversal between men and women. So, what we have is Eve having a conversation with Satan in front of Adam. And Satan is super crafty, and so he goes to Eve. In other words, he goes around the God-given authority structure in this marriage relationship. And what's Adam doing? Standing there twiddling his thumbs. He's passively standing by as his wife is being tempted. And so apparently, Adam hasn't done a great job communicating the commandment of God, or at least reminding his wife of what the commandment of God is, which God had communicated to Adam. And as a result, Eve is deceived. She takes the fruit, she gives it to her husband, And they both break the command of God and they break the heart of God. And part of the reason for that is because they stepped outside of the God-given gender roles that God had given to them. And what we see as a result of the brokenness in their relationship is that the relationships between men and women have been broken down through the centuries, down even to our day. And so we experience brokenness in relationships, in our workplace, in our homes, and in our churches. My wife and I made a mistake this last week. We broke the 10 p.m. rule, okay? We have this rule in our marriage where we don't talk about anything significant after 10 (laughs) p.m., and I was breaking the rule. I was trying to engage my wife in a serious conversation after 10 p.m., and she's saying, please just don't talk to me about this right now. And I just kept pushing. I wanted to solve the issue. I wanted to, you know, make the relationship right before we went to bed, and so I pushed it, and here's what happened. It didn't go well (laughs) at all. For the next half an hour, we just rotated in circles around each other with various accusations and anger. Occasionally, there's cussing in these conversations. And things just don't go well. And Melissa and I have a great marriage, but we still experience this brokenness in our relationship. To have a great marriage is to enter into conflict. It's to work toward God's design. But we all know that there is something fundamentally wrong in our relationships with one another. And that all started, according to the biblical story, at the fall. So here's the question. How can this problem be made right? the world has a solution to that, right? Try to get on top. Try to be the best. Let's fight to be number one. But God's plan for us to be reconciled to one another is far different than the wisdom of the world. The message of the Bible is that gender is redeemed through Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 and then chapter 4 verses 4 through 6 gives us the biblical solution to the brokenness between the genders. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the solution to the brokenness between genders, Paul says, in one sense, is that in Christ Christ, There is no such thing as gender. Here's what I mean by in one sense. Paul is not saying that the gospel eliminates your sex. He is saying that the gospel makes it clear that every person is equal in the sight of God. Men have mistreated women for thousands of years. Women have mistreated men for thousands of years. And the world has tried many types of solutions, and they're all just Band-Aids. We know the answer is found in Christ. And here's what Jesus says about every single person in this room male or female, black or white, Asian or Hispanic. He says that in Christ, you are a son of God. Here's why this is really important in the Bible, the son is the heir. Okay, you might wonder why at the end of this text it says, so that they might receive adoption as sons. It's because the son is the heir. In other words, to be a daughter was to be a second class citizen in a family. Paul is saying something very profound here. He's saying, because of what Jesus has done, everyone is a son. Everyone is a full member of God's family who gets all of the blessings of being part of that family. And that's because we all enter relationship with God the same way. We enter relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus. We come humbly to Jesus. We don't feel inferior because of our gender and we don't feel superior because of our gender. We recognize that we are sinners in the sight of God and that he has saved us by his grace and his grace alone. Guys, I'm reminded of this truth of adoption every single day in my family. Guys, it is so beautiful to wake up and to see my five kids sitting at the counter in the kitchen, ready for breakfast. I have two kids that are adopted from the Democratic Republic of Congo. They have dark black skin. And I have three kids that are biological. And we make no distinction between our kids. We love them equally. There are two ways To have kids, we've learned, biologically and through adoption, and they are all 100% our kids, and we love them. Here's what God's saying. This is what matters. You are 100% his kid through faith in Jesus, not superior and not inferior. And so here's the way that we come to this message As men and women, we look at each other and we see brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't come to each other with any air of superiority or pride. But we look at each other and like Adam before the fall, we say, wow, God is a creative God. Look at his masterpiece and we dignify every person that we meet. And we love them. And as we'll see, the application is that we submit ourselves to one another. So there's a couple specific applications that we've been talking about as a church family. And I want to get into some specifics because I think it'll be helpful for all of us as we think through Gender. So here's where the sermon gets a little sticky. We're talking about gender in the home, and we're talking about gender in the church. So first, let's talk about gender in the home. Ephesians chapter 5, we're just looking at verses 31 through 33. Here's how marriage is described. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's the important foundation of marriage. In a profound mystery, when a man and woman are married, the two become one flesh. Do you see the reflection of the Trinity in that? Two people, one unit, different roles, beautiful design. If you are married, when you see your spouse, you should see someone who is beautiful and equal in worth to you in a profound, and deeply mysterious way. As a church family, we should be in awe of marriage. Wow. Two people, one flesh. So here's your options in the world. As a husband, you can either be passive. Or domineering. I think often when we begin to talk about leadership in the home and how men are called to lead their families, we immediately think in worldly categories, and men, we've been guilty of this. We've thought of leadership as a right. And the way that the Bible portrays leadership is something very different than that. God does not call men to be passive. Sitting on the couch, bag of potato chips, beer, honey, can you get me this, can you get me that? Controlling the remote control. Or domineering. Do this, do that. I'm in charge. You better listen. Submit to me. There's no place for that. In our homes. In this church. This is what God calls Men to be loving. Earlier in the text, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's what leadership looks like in the home of a Christian man he is a responsible servant. He is taking responsibility for his family, and he is seeking to outdo his wife in being the lead servant in the family. Let me ask you guys a convicting question who are married. Who more practically serves your family in the home? You or your wife? guys, we have some work to do. Guys, we should be convicted. Guys, we need to take responsibility. Guys, we need to serve our families. Not demand our rights. Lay down our rights. Okay, women, the Bible calls you to respect your husband. Okay, two ditches that I see that women can get into. You can become bitter against your husband. Or you can be bossy. Bitter. There's this undertone in your marriage. You talk to the gals at the coffee shop about your husband in a negative way. You do what you're supposed to do But it's not out of a heart of respect for your husband. It's actually a competition with him. Or you can nag him. Tell him straight up that he's not doing a good job, that he hasn't done this, that he hasn't done that. Here's what God calls you to, women. From the heart to respect your husband. Here's what I think it means to be respectful according to this text. It means that you are an honoring helper. Your husband's weaknesses are an opportunity for you to step in and fill the gaps. Love overlooks fault. Ladies, in your heart of hearts, are you overlooking the faults of your husband? Or are you rubbing them in his face? As his helper, God would have you come alongside of him, pray for him, respect him, and love him, even when he doesn't deserve it. This all points us to the way of the cross. Because if we're honest with ourselves as men and women, none of this is natural to any of us. This is the supernatural Christian life lived out in the context of marriage. And so if this sounds foreign to you, that's because it is. Remember what Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Marriage, by definition, is Christian discipleship. It is to lay down your life, your rights for another person. It is to climb up on the cross on a daily basis and seek to love one another. It is not a 50-50 relationship. It is a relationship where each person gives themselves 100% to God first and 100% to the other person secondly, regardless of what you are getting in return. We have different roles within marriage but those roles are equally dignified. Here's an example I will often use when I do weddings. Marriage is like a symphony, okay? Imagine that God has put the man in the marriage relationship in the place of the conductor. God's word is like a beautiful piece of music written by Mozart, and that man's wife is like the first chair violin, The conductor is doing everything in his power to make that first chair violin sound as beautiful as he possibly can. But what they are both submitted to is the piece of music on the stand. In marriage, we are submitted to the lordship of Jesus. We have different roles but they are equally important. And God calls us to live in those roles with humility and love for each other. Here's what I'm saying. Let me say this as kind of a a final warning on this point. There is no room for abuse in this church. Do you understand when I say that wives are to submit to their husbands, and husbands are to lead their wives. Don't make any mistake. There is no room for abuse in this church. If someone is hurting you, mistreating you, or abusing you, there are leaders in this church who you can trust, and you can come to, and we are going to do something about it. Because God has given us this position of authority to protect and love people. There's no room for abuse. Okay. We've talked about the home. Now let's talk about the church. Okay, guys. I think that the most helpful step for me to take right now is actually to get into a little bit of controversy. Because I think that The controversy is what we're really talking about as a church right now. And so I want to go to a very straightforward passage in Scripture, 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 and 13. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Ephesus. He's writing to their pastor. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first. Than Eve. Okay, I think the problem with this passage, the reason we have trouble with it, is not because it's not clear, but because it is clear. It's a tough pill to swallow for many of us. So let me read a quote to start from a lady named Mary Cassian about how she responds to this text because I think she responds in a very godly way. She says, I believe that as a rule, treasuring and honoring God's model of headship means that I refrain from teaching during the regular weekly gathering of the church, that is, preaching Sunday morning, even if I am asked to do so. I delight in the fact that God has created us male and female and wired us to be spiritual dads and moms. Arguably, Because I am a gifted teacher, I could do a better job of interpreting the text and delivering the sermon than many church fathers do. But that would miss the point. It's not about competence. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Even if we don't like it, don't agree with it, or don't understand it, the boundary is quite clear." having the church fathers authoritatively teach and instruct the congregation is God's standard for the regular public meeting of the local church. Okay, so that's Mary Cassian. Now let's hear from somebody in our own church, okay? I had a great conversation with Jenna Weichel. Here's a Jenna Weichel quote, okay? It's short and to the point, but I think it's really helpful. This is what Jenna said. One thing Was off limits in the Garden of Eden, and one thing is off limits in the church. That's profound. Ladies, there's one thing off limits in the church it's preaching the Word of God as an elder regularly on Sunday morning. That's what this text is saying. And I do not have the authority, even though I do not fully understand this text, to change the word of God. So I would encourage us as men and women to have a posture of humility when we come to this book because we believe it was written by God. And I can't change the word of God on any subject. And so we cannot permit a woman to teach or exercise authority in this church because we can't change the word of God. And here's the main objection that I have heard levied against this text. It's, well, that was limited to that one cultural context. So there's a unique situation going on in Ephesus that's not going on today, and that's why Paul said that but it is impossible to interpret that text this way because of verse 13. Paul actually grounds the text in creation. So verse 12, he said, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Verse 13, for or because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Here's what he's saying. The order of creation sets up the roles in the church. The order of creation sets up the roles in our church family. Adam was formed first. Men are to take responsibility to preach and teach the word of God authoritatively and to oversee the church in a fatherly way. Okay, so then the question comes, what does this practically look like in our church? And we can start to get into these discussions. It's like, what can men and women do and not do? And how do we figure all this out? Give me a list. That would really help me out. Again, I think Mary Cassian is very helpful on this. An externally focused, rule-based approach to women teaching co-ed audiences in the church neither reflects nor honors the beauty of God's design. God wants us to have a grace-soaked, joyous spirit that delights in honoring headship as a beautiful aspect of his good and wise plan. Here's what I'm saying. There's something much better than a list, and that's that we love one another, that we submit to one another, and that all of us see the differing roles between men and women as a beautiful thing. Okay, ladies, some of you have expressed a desire to have more leadership in our church, And our goal is to continue to provide more leadership opportunities for both men and women. We're figuring it out. We're a new church, right? But here's what I'm saying. What qualifies you to have more of a public role in the life of our church is that you delight in this teaching. Not just that you begrudgingly accept it, but you delight that God has made you a woman and not a man, that you're like, this is awesome that you see the role that he has given you in your home or in our church as a beautiful thing and not something that would steal your joy away or keep you from being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, but it's actually the pathway to you being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And likewise, guys, for you to have opportunity to have leadership in our church you have to have the type of humility that doesn't lord your role over the women of our church or to insinuate by your attitude or by what you say that you are somehow better because you are a man. We all come as equals to the foot of the cross, we submit to God's word not because we fully understand it, but because we know by our life experience that it is the pathway to our joy. God has laid this path in front of us because He wants to redeem what has been broken by the fall. And he has specifically give us, given us opportunity to reflect this in the church. Okay, final word: Ephesians 5 verse 21. How are we going to do this? Here's what the Apostle Paul says very simply. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's what that means. When we look at Jesus, we see someone who respectfully submitted to the will of his Father by going to the cross. In other words, Jesus knows what it's like to follow leadership even when it hurts. And Jesus took the lead by being our responsible servant. He took responsibility for something he didn't do. The sin of the world. He took it on his shoulders. He didn't ask the disciples wash his feet. He bent down and washed their feet. We submit to one another in our God-given gender roles because we see our example in Jesus Christ and we say, wow, if Jesus can do that for me, it's a small thing for me to do that in my home and in the church. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your beautiful design of gender. I pray that every One in this crowd this morning would feel dignified. That they would know that whether male or female, that they have been created in your image. That you are in the process of redeeming them. That although our sin is great, although we have not acted according to your will in this area of gender, that you still love us, that you accept us. And would you help us just to take some steps forward as a church family in conversations and the way we treat one another and love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.